You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now... Here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. All righty, we are back for another podcast. And today we are going to be talking with a gentleman named Garrett Stump. He is a bow shop owner in Ohio. And, you know... I had this whole uh, product review podcast scheduled for him, and then as I started exchanging emails with him and through the short conversation we had before this uh, podcast started, I actually found out he did own his own bow shop, and I kind of quickly changed the subject of today's podcast to setting up bows, um, and we get into a lot of detail, there's that word again, details, about how to set up uh, your bow, um, things that he sees people do wrong. We we talk about um, overdrawing, underdrawing. We talk about uh, timing of the cams. We talk about vertical knock travel. Um, we talk about you know you know as guys we want to shoot a, the biggest, baddest, fastest bow on the market. And is that really necessary? Um, you know, obviously guys have been killing animals with bows for hundreds of years and they've done it without you know 400 feet per second or whatever you know 400 ibos and you know we just get into a lot of detail about how to properly set up your bow things to look for um you know even we we even talk about you know let's say you're an, a good accurate shooter but you may not be using the full capabilities of your bow. So you're actually losing efficiency. And we, we talk a little bit about that as well. So it's just a, a really cool conversation with somebody, you know, yes, or two days ago, we had a, a conversation with someone who is a professional archer. And today we get to talk with someone who literally works on bows for, it's not his full-time job, but it is a part-time job. So it's, you know, just another side of the of the uh, you know, another piece of the puzzle in, into you know not only becoming a better bow hunter but becoming a better archer. And like I've said previously, those two things go hand in hand. And to be honest with you, uh, my goal is to 
be able to become more familiar with my equipment and be able to read it and be able to identify those inconsistencies and those, um, you know, those points where I'm losing efficiency uh, and, and being able to address those issues with my archery equipment. So it's a, it's kind of a, a journey for me as well. And there's a part in this podcast where I realize that I've been doing something wrong for 15 years of shooting a bow. So uh, that's all good and dandy. Now I got a little piece of paper here that, uh, um, yeah, a little piece of paper here that charts all my, all my partners of, uh, of the podcast. And I want to take this opportunity to thank all of the partners of the podcast. Uh, we have Exodus trail cameras, wasp broadheads, ripcord air arrests, DeerLab.com. Uh, that's a housing for all your trail camera photos, Ozonics and gearhead archery. Now, I just want to talk to you a little bit about some of these companies right now. We are, we, we get to offer a discount to you. So like, um, Exodus, right? So Exodus, you can go to their website and you can purchase uh, one of their trail cameras. And when you uh, decide to purchase and at checkout, you can enter the code nine fingers, right? And that's the number nine followed by the word fingers. And you can receive $20 off of your, uh, trail camera purchase. Now you can use the same code at wasp archery, uh, and save 20% on their broadheads. And because, uh, wasp is kind of a sister company of Montana decoy, you can also use nine finger, nine fingers as a discount code for Montana decoys as well. Um, we got some cool things coming with Ripcord and Ozonics uh, later on this summer. But uh, Deer Lab, if you go to DeerLab.com slash Nine Fingers, that's a landing page for all the Nine Finger Chronicles listeners. Uh, if you sign up there, you will get a free 30-day trial period. Uh, and that would be perfect for you to take all your trail camera pictures and dump them right in there and uh, basically learn about deer movement on your property. It's pretty awesome. So I strongly suggest going and checking out all of these companies um, and, you know, giving them a, a look and see if they, uh, they fit your needs. So enough of that. The bills are now paid. Uh, thank you guys for tuning in. And uh, let's get into today's podcast with bow shop owner Garrett Stump. Mr. Garrett Stump, how you doing today, man? I'm doing well. How about yourself, Dan? You know, I'm recording this on a Wednesday night, and I'm going to work for eight hours on Thursday, and then I head down to my annual turkey camp with my wife, stepdad, kids, and uh, my mom takes care of the kids while the rest of us go uh, turkey hunting. So my truck's already loaded up. I got my camo uh, in the dryer right now, and I'm, I'm pretty excited to get out into the timber. Heck yeah, you know, getting ready, uh, getting done with uh, bow season and everything like that. Turkey's about to come in here in Ohio. Youth season comes in the 25th. Um, so I'm also starting to get ready uh, to get my daughter out here in the next couple of days. So oh, perfect, pretty excited perfect. about that. So the the youth t- season typically comes first, and that doesn't even start in Ohio until the 25th? No, I mean, 
the last couple of years, they've been changing a lot of things, uh, moving, you know, duck and goose season around and, and, uh, just kind of goofing off with all the regulations and, and the season dates. Um, and yes, uh, it's not opening till the 25th. Uh, I mean, what are you going to do? You know, you kind of got to abide by it and just, uh, right. and go from the hip there at that point, you know, but, uh, yeah. I've seen a lot of gobblers and, and a lot of birds lately. So I, I hope we're not, I hope the season didn't get, uh, you know, goofed a little bit too much, you know, because they right. seem to be really active right now. Right. Yeah. I'm hoping I went on a drive and saw three shredders tonight myself, um, before, before supper tonight, but man, I'm, I'm jacked. Just, I don't know what it is. I, and maybe you feel the same way, but you just, you're, it's pitch black. You're seeing the sun slowly start to come up. The birds are chirping. And then all of a sudden that first gobble just cracks and it's on from there. You know, isn't that what we do it for though? I mean, once we <laughs> really, once we, uh, you know, call them in and get them to the point where it's, uh, where it's dinner time, you know, and, right. and the dinner bell rings and, uh, <laughs> then, then it's all over, you know, it's kind of, it, I don't want to say it's depressing, but you know, the calling game and the talking game, the chase, oh, is, yeah. it's all, it's all gone, you know? That's right. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Well, I tell you what, it's kind of funny where, how we got to this podcast, um, today and we were bouncing uh, emails back and forth for what, almost like eight months, I think it was. Yeah. And yeah. A little, yeah, and then we were, you know, we finally connected. We got a date, and we had this schedule planned out. We're we we're going to talk about um, clothing for kids, right? You know, so if you got kids, and you right. you know, kids always want to, you know, they always get cold first, so they want to leave. So maybe talk. We talked about that, and then we were going to talk about obsession bows. And then through the conversation, in the right when I called you, I found out that you owned a bow shop, and you run it out of your house. And then we did a complete one eighty, and now that's what we're going to talk about tonight all good so i hope you're ready to shoot from the hip yeah yeah i'm, I'm as ready as you are perfect <laughs> well don't say that because <laughs> i'm never I'm, I'm never ready for anything hey, hey we'll make this work you know <laughs> right right all right so before we start talking about the bow shop um how was your 2016 season actually <laughs> uh it, it, it's kind of crazy um it, the, the way the season works around here um, with, with bucks, you're, you're allowed to get one buck, right? Um, so once you're, you know, and you can get three dough, one buck, three dough, doesn't matter how you do it. Um, whether that's with, uh, you know, shotguns around here, the season has changed a little bit. Um, and you can get right, you know, uh, handgun cartridges throughout a rifle. But anyway, I don't do any gun hunting. So I'm out there early season and, and, at this point, I'm just uh, meeting the freezer, right? Right. And so I'm just waiting for some dough to come around, and uh, and that's what happened. At least I thought uh, she's coming through, and and she takes a broadside and at 35 yards, and uh, and I let the I let the arrow go. Well, and I, I smacked what I thought was her, right? And and we, she goes off, and and whatever, you know, goes down. I wait it out. You know, I call everybody. And I'm like, Hey, I got a doe. I'm going to need you to come help me, you know, because of where she ran. I have, I hunt about 70 acres of swamp. Okay. And, and, uh, so when she goes in there, I mean, it, it's tough to get deer out of there. Right. So I find her and then, uh, just happened to blend in 
a couple inches of antlers, right? So I never seen the antlers because I was so focused on getting a doe. When I seen the deer, all attention went to the kill shot instead of the head. You you kind of know how, I mean, if you know what I'm talking about, you just look at that deer and yeah. you, you know, well, just a misidentification. So that took my whole season out of whack last year because I okay. popped that pop that buck so i went the rest of the season watching these deer <laughs> you know yeah. um so i don't want to say it wasn't successful it was absolutely successful and i went through the season you know um and and had multiple opportunities and uh but that that really kind of took the took the wind out of the sails you know because I was, I was going for i sent you that picture of that buck and mm. that's who i was going after and and you know it, it was I hate to say it was just bound to happen, but uh, I had a really good chance of that happening. And when, when I shot that small buck, it really just kind of, that hurt. But anyway, I put meat in the freezer. (laughs) Yeah. I guess there's a plus side to it. Um, was the buck really small? I mean, is, no, no, you thought it was a, thought it was a doe, but. Well, I mean, it it was, I mean, I guess what you'd call a cold buck, you know, just, uh, I mean, nice body deer and everything just the antlers the genetics weren't there gotcha Gotcha. you know and and it's so thick here in in northeast ohio that you know especially when you're talking you know early season which around here starts like the uh third week of september around well the last last week of september i guess you could say you know the date kind of changes a little bit but it's usually around september 28th yeah for sure and, uh, so there was still foliage on the leaves and I just, they happened to blend in with everything in the background and she just, or he looked like a full on doe to me. Yeah. Well, Hey man, that happens. Like I said, at least you got some meat in the freezer for that. That's right. Perfect. All right. So do you do your boat? You know, you run a bow shop out of your house do you do that full time or do you have a, another job? No, I, I, uh, I actually work for the post office. I'm a mail carrier. Um, okay. that's, that's my full time job. Um, but lucky for me, you know, I, I, I do get four weeks vacation. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, and I'm sure you're well aware of this. Um, but the bow shop, I mean, it, it's hard to make a living in the bow shop all year long during that three weeks, three, four weeks of the year. Yeah. You'll kill it. I mean, you'll do pretty well for yourself. Um, but it's only that period of time, you know, it's, it's hard to really, really support yourself on the income throughout the year, unless you're into, unless you have some clients who are real, uh, target archers, you know, you know what I mean? Guys that come in on a consistent basis and not just right, you know, yeah. And, and guys that want full on tune in new strings, you know, right when they see a little bit of, uh, fur on their string and this and that, you know, but, but with, with the economy and everything, they don't, they don't do that. Right. Right. So post office, um, are you, are you, you're a mail deliverer? So you get out, you drive the car or do you get out and walk? Well, uh, it's a combination of both. Um, you actually, what you do is you drive the truck. Uh, I mean, essentially I walk, but I drive the truck, you know, out from the post office, go onto my route, you know, park, and then I start delivering. And then when I'm done with that area, go back to the truck and move to the next area. Gotcha. Okay. Um, you ever been attacked by a dog? (laughs) 
I should have known that was coming. Yeah, yeah, I have. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's, I mean, everybody everybody cracks jokes about that, but they, they don't realize that crap really happens. So do you carry pepper spray? Yeah, yeah, and, and a swift foot, too. A swift foot. So, so when a dog comes at you, I mean, I had to throw, uh, this was what, last week, I went on a walk with my kids and my boy okay. kept trying to get out of the, uh, he kept trying to get out of the actual, uh, stroller. So I let him get out and he was walking down the road and right. there was two dogs sitting in a garage and, um, I, there was a guy out there, he was working on like a old lawnmower or something like that. And I said, okay. Hey, how you doing? And he raised his voice and he said, Hey, how you doing? Well, the dogs heard him yelling at me. Right. So oh, okay. the dogs both shot out and my son was kind of in the middle of between me and my daughter, but he was in the wide open and right. this dog was heading right for my son. So I took the stroller oh, no. and had to throw it at this dog and the, then the dog veered away and ran away. And then the guy came out. He's like, oh, my God, they've never done that before, whatever. And I'm, I kind of was, you know, crapping my pants there for a second, thinking and I was going to have to take my son to the hospital. But, right. you know, it, it all worked out. So how, how many times a year do, do dogs chase you? Well, um, you know, if I had to guess, um, during the winter, it's nil. I mean, around here nobody comes out in the winter you know and and nobody's out um but now that the spring has hit and you know summer's roll you know coming in and and uh everything depending on the route if it's one of the routes that we would consider you know like uh uh i, I don't really want <laughs> the lower income you know the fighting dogs around here because we have a lot of fighting dogs um oh, wow yeah, you know, just that whole network of, of town, you know what I mean? And uh, so you're looking at people, at least a person being chased once a week. Oh, wow, that's nuts. All right. and, and that's, you know, I mean, we had a guy go to the hospital last year for getting tore up by a pit bull, you know. And, and I oh, don't want to say Lord. just pit bulls, but around here that tends to be the prominent yeah. problem. Okay, this is some crazy shit. Now, automatically, my brain now is going from a dog. Have you ever had to, like, pepper spray a person? Or, like, have you been attacked by a person? You know, most of the time, it's women. <laughs> you know, uh, most of the time, they're the ones that, that get a little rambunctious and feisty uh, about the male and everything like that. But, no, I've never actually been uh, physically attacked, I guess, you know, because most of the time I'm pretty good at trying to deter that before that ever happens. But, uh, I always crack jokes to people about, you know, I don't have to worry about the dogs. I have to worry about the people in my area of town. Oh man. So they're, they're basically just pissed at you because you're bringing bills. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that tends to be it. Or I'm, or I'm <laughs> either I'm bringing bills or I'm not bringing something they want. <laughs> Man. You know, it, it's it's a thankless job, but you know what I mean. It, it puts food on the table. That's right. Well, I'm here to say thank you for all of your hard work. <laughs> Thanks. All right, Bo. Let's talk archery. All right. Um, so, bow shop. What's it like running a bow shop out of your house? Um, it, you know, it's it's one of those things. That it's rewarding. Um, during during the time of the year where I actually get to 
you know, kind of goof off with everybody's bows that come in and their, their crossbows, you know, I, I get to, you know, pretty much, you know, shoot other people's setups and really tailor them to them. So, so that part's really cool about it. But the problem about owning a, any bow shop, whether that's out of your house or not, is everybody, it, it seems like bow hunters are the worst procrastinators when it right. comes to getting their bow their the, the system that they're going to depend on to kill an animal or to harvest an animal with, they right. tend to procrastinate, you know, and that's where the, it seems to me working on them. That seems to be where they like to skimp on the most money. You know, they'll put all their money elsewhere, but they won't put it in the setup that is essentially the business end. You know what right. I'm saying? So, right. you know, um, it, it's tough on that note because everybody, you get hit within a week or two period of time and everybody wants their stuff done now. You know, right. that's the toughest. Right. But other right. than that, it's, it's pretty rewarding because I can take any, I can pretty much take, you know, one of the six big uh, bow manufacturers and go shoot one. <laughs> all day. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. All, all um, day long. You know what I mean? Yeah. They even provide me arrows. Heck yeah. So <laughs> when, just kind of right off the bat, like, do you, you don't sell any bows at your shop, but you, but you set them up. So a guy, guy goes out, he figures out what bow he wants, uh, he wants to shoot. Now, do you, do they bring you all the parts or are, is the site and the rest already on there? when they bring you, let's say like a new bow to set up? Well, I mean, it, it could be anything, you know, in, in between it, it could be a, a full bow with everything on it. And just because they put screws through the site and mounted it to the riser and did all this, did all that. And they want it, uh, they want to be able to grab that bow and be able to anchor where they're supposed to anchor, you know, the poundage where they want it and the bow pretty much shooting, um, left, left, right, you know, Mm -hmm. where it needs to be and you know uh vertically where it needs to be um and, and then when they get here i'll bring them out to the range that i got behind the house and uh and we'll fine tune the peep and everything we need to need to do at that point gotcha so when a bow and i'm just i'm talking one that is straight from the factory right it's probably only been shot a handful of times um, at the place it was sold. People are testing it out. But right. when a when a new bow comes to you and it's time to set it up and tune it, what are the first things that you notice? I, I guess, is there, is there a consistency between all bow manufacturers? Like, okay, well, the cams are not timed. Uh, the... You know, there's loose parts or whatever. Is there is there a consistency throughout all bow manufacturers for the first things that you have to address on a new bow? Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to say the first thing I really have to address because bow manufacturers have gotten so efficient and so um, good at what they do. Um, other than other than if if a guy buys a used a brand new used uh, what do you want to call it? Um, uh, shooting model, you know, a practice model that they have out, right. then, then I have to go through and really make sure everything's squared away and nobody nicked it just to be a goofball, you know, cause mm -hmm. you do have people who go through and will take their pocket knife and screw with a string, you know, um, believe it or not. Um, and 
so the new bows that come in the box, you know, they bring me the bow in the box and this and that, you know, I still do check the timing and then, you know, I find out exactly what the specific person needs. Maybe they need a little extra uh, draw length or they need a little less. I can put some twists in the string and, and uh, figure out where to go from there. But, you know, just on a, a very basic level, these bows are just right where they need to be if that perfect if that bow was perfect for that specific person but most of the time you know the bow alone is is good where it's at it's just that person needs a little bit of tweaking um just so they have the proper setup okay now i've always kind of i've always heard this what does twisting the string actually do okay um well when you're you know you know, if you're talking about the actual string where the uh, arrow's launched from, because they're, you know, typically, you know, people refer to strings as in, as in all three strings or two strings, depending on what bow it is, all into one category, but that's just not the case. Um, the string, if you put twists in the string, you can, you can, um, you know, give yourself a little less draw length. Let's just say it's a little long for you. You can add a couple a couple twists and, and one twist makes quite a difference, um, believe it or not. And you can remove twists. But the thing is, is every time you put, let's just say one twist in the string. And then, you know, what that does is it, it'll shorten your, your draw, but it'll add poundage. It'll make, it'll change the dynamic of how them two strings work together. So you'll actually have to take out, uh, that same amount out of a cable. Okay. Um, if and that makes sense. Yeah, kind of. Um, like this is all kind of new to me because uh, I'm that kind of I'm that guy who I take my bow to a, um, you know, to somebody and they say, and I say, fix this for me or set it up for me. You know, put this new string on or, um, you know, I I I have problems with something and then they are the you know they think about it and help me out you know what i mean so um so with with that said then so if what happens if a guy has a peep sight and you're taking out do you have to take that peep sight back out and then put it back in well that that depends because if you're doing a full twist most of the time that peep sight will do the full twist along with the string and it'll line right back up. But if you need okay. to do a half twist, then yes, you're going to have to remove the peep and then you're going to have to, you know, put the peep around to the other side and insert it back through. So it lines back up. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and that, that's all dependent. Also, if you have, if you have a singular peep, um, with no, um, stretch tube to it, where that would, you know, straighten out your peep for you. It really just depends, you know I mean? But for the most part, even when I'm setting up a bow, even if they have the, or even if they want it, which, you know, not a whole lot of people do nowadays, um, right. but want that, want the, um, the uh, tubing, the stretch tube hooked up, I still try to line that up perfectly so that tubing isn't yanking the string left or right, okay. if that makes sense, right. to straighten it out. I want it, I want as minimal uh, unnecessary movement in that string as possible. Okay. So, so by twisting it, I would assume this is just me thinking from a kind of a, a dummy's brain, but 
if, if you're twisting and untwisting, you know, and I, there's times when I draw back and I, I just can't get my peep sight to line up. So, you know, you're always messing with your peep sight, trying to, to get it to stay straight when you draw back. And there's always that ro- a little bit of that rotation in there. What does that right. do? Does that affect the arrow at all? If the string is spinning as it, as you release it, is that affecting the tail end of the arrow at all from a tuning standpoint? Well, it, it could, um, and that actually probably has more more to do with your your how your D loop is set up. Okay. Um, and I'm I'm going to try to explain this as, as easy as possible. Um, have you? Have, I mean, if do you have a chance to look at your D loop right now, or is that not a? No, it's in uh, the garage. I'm sorry. Okay. Oh no, no big deal. Um, but if you look how the D loop is knotted on the right. string, right? Um, it any. Anyone who, and this is all, you know, I don't want to say I, I, I know I know all, but the way I do it is I'll make the top knot, um, like let's just say the uh, string will come over, the D-loop string will come over from the right side of the top knot, and then the bottom part of the D-loop string will come from the left, will go over the left side of the string. So when you're looking at the D-loop, it's actually not coming from, like all the right side of the string, it's not connected. Does that make sense? It's not coming off the right side of the string. So you actually have a little bit of a, a natural turn there because the string, the D loop is going from the right side to the left side. Right. Okay. Okay. And what that does is that eliminates, a, I mean, and it really depends on what release you have also. Um, but that eliminates a lot of that string twist. Now okay. what you need to do with your peak site you need to, uh, what, what I would do is I would line that peep, you know, making sure, I mean, if it's really bad, like if it's all the way turning to the right or turning to the left, I would put a half a twist into your, into the longest, uh, length of string in between your peep site and your cam. So if that, the longest amount of string, which would be from the peep down to the bottom cam, I would put a half a turn in the direction that peep needs to go. Okay. All right. Okay. Because the further you get away from the peep, the bigger, the, um, the uh, less amount of distance, the less amount of effect it has, if that makes sense. So you can yeah. actually fine tune it by getting away a little bit. Okay. Um, so I would do that. And if that moved it right into the place, then I would, you know, put a new D loop on it and I would lock it as tight as I can onto that string right where the, the uh, peep is lined up and line that D loop up to it. And it should not turn. Okay. Man, that's crazy. Um, so then, so then, um, that, you know, a lot of guys, whether they're, you know, their draw length on certain bows can only be, you know, maybe like a half inch at a time, uh, you know, but you can also add length to your draw by twisting the string, right? Or take, take draw out. Within reason, you can, um, but that is much more of a, of a fine tuning. Um, yeah, I mean, you you don't want to buy a twenty nine you know inch draw a standard twenty nine inch draw bow when you have a twenty eight inch draw and just say, oh, because I got a good deal, I'm going to put it you know five twists into this string and tighten this all up. You, you're going to create more problems than it's worth. You're going to end gotcha. up buying a new bow. Gotcha. <laughs> um, you know, and I hate to be that dramatic. But some, you know, 
unfortunately, I, I, I run into that a lot. And, and it is very frustrating because, you know, you want to set these guys up, you know, where their bow is so efficient, nothing to go wrong with it, especially yeah. when I put my name behind it, my work sure. behind it. For sure. Right. Okay. So all it's right. all within reason. Right. So kind of on the same path as, you know, the string here. I, w- I was watching some YouTube videos about there's this guy who he's like kind of like you and several other guys who are just straight up gearheads when it comes to bows. And um, he does these really sophisticated tests on on all these major brands uh, that they, they send him one. He does a test and then they send it back and he writes this unbiased uh, review. Um, and he always talks about vertical knock travel. And until I... I listened to his uh, videos. I didn't know what that was. So can you explain to the listeners what vertical knock travel is and why it's bad? Well, I mean, I'm not sure that vertical knock travel is necessarily uh, bad all all around, if that makes sense. Um, I'm just basing this off, uh, like, I, I've learned about this from one person, and it's a guy on YouTube, right? So he sounded smart, so I trust him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, well, vertical stock travel, what you're talking about is, is the, bow, the bows have grown, um, <laughs> you know, so, um, what do you want to say? I mean, I, let's just say from the 80s to this point, okay, uh, knock travel, well, I, I would think, um, because I wasn't doing bows in the 80s, um, but vertical knock travel is one of those things where, you know, um, essentially, and, and a lot of, I'm going to try, trying to dumb this down. Um, it, it is, it is an important subject, but, um, it's one of those things where vertical knock travel, what that is, is the, when your string is drawn back and you have your arrow pretty much in the rep, right. Mm-hmm. And now is, is, you know, I'm not asking, this is a rhetorical question, but is your arrow at an angle, right? Is it gotcha. from the rear high and to the rest low? And what that is, is when you're, when you release that string, because you're not exactly centered where your where your uh, uh, B loop is, is not centered in the string in between the cams. Okay. You can, you can take that measurement and it will not be exactly centered in between them too. And so what you're doing essentially is vertical knock travel doesn't have to be a bad thing. It helps if you, if you add like, let's say an eighth of an, have you ever heard of somebody say you need an eighth of an inch high on your knock? Anything like that? Yeah, I've heard that. Now, okay. Now that that's not required for every bow, right? That's not, I'm not sure that that's necessarily a requirement for any bow, but there are some bows that just, that just like that, you know, just kind of like a selection of an arrow. Now, what that does is if you're a little bit like an eighth of an inch high on the knot, what that does is when you let go of that string, it's constantly driving that arrow down into the rest at a, at a downward angle. And by the time that string or that knock comes off of the string, then that's where uh, all it, it's pretty much off the rest at that point in time. Um, and, and it's free floating through the rest. Okay or depending on what rest you have. But what it did was while it was coming through the bow, it was constantly being guided by using downward 
structure on rest to help guide that arrow. Okay. And then that knock travel. Now, you know, my, the obsession bows, they tend to, it's all level. It's, there's right. no, there's no downward pressure, right? Okay. And that's just because of how the bow is designed. You know, you can put an eighth of an inch, um, higher or whatever some other people, you know, require or whatever the case is or, or want to do. It's all, it's all about, you know, um, really experience being able to do it and really feeling what that bow needs and, and shooting right. it. Um, but there's just so much that goes into it. Um, and you can do that with, uh, you know, the cams, you can, you know, do it with, uh, the, the D loop. Um, there's just so much, um, that we could spend a whole podcast talking about this. Um, but essentially vertical knock travel, I don't necessarily look at that as a bad thing. Um, but just not all bows require it when, if I was going to Gander mountain, for instance, um, they, I'm pretty sure are just taught standardly to make that, uh, knock an eighth of an inch high of where the rest is set. Gotcha. Um, so it's, it's just a standard basic understanding that you can set up almost every bow with a little bit of vertical knock travel and it'll shoot fine. But when you're coming into fine tuning, that all changes. Right. So the first thing that pops into my head is, okay, if your arrow is consistently driving down on the rest and, you know, it's almost like a, a skateboard ramp, right? Um, and for some reason, I'm, I'm thinking of a graph that starts right to left. When you draw back, that that gets further away from the bottom line. And then when you release, it goes back the opposite way, kind of like a pendulum. And that knot hits even right as it's released, right? Correct. Level? Okay. So it's continuously driving down on the rest. Does that affect, um, like, the efficiency of the bow? Uh, Does that make the bow loud um, because there's more contact to the uh, sight? Um, I, I I just feel, for me, that if... The arrow is level, and the arrow is level the entire time. Um, and, and I get the point of it now is to you know right. to have that force, uh, you know, have that uh, arrow rely on the rest, rely on the rest to until it's it. yeah to guide it. Now, what happens if it's perfectly level? Right? Do we then start seeing inaccuracies? Well, it, it really depends on the bow and like. Um, for instance, if you're familiar with like the, uh, you, you remember, you know, not, I don't know, two years ago, I think it was, uh, Matthews came out with the, the no cam, right? right now, what that was essentially what the, that whole design was based for knock travel. Okay. For no vertical knock travel whatsoever. The point of where you drew that bow back to the rear and the point of where that knock was, um, when the arrow, uh, was, um, left off the string, there was no up or down vertical, uh, travel. It was just straight back, straight forward, right? That was the, the, the selling point. Right. And, and you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sit here and say, you know, uh, Mr. McPherson doesn't know what he's talking about. And I I would never say that because the dude, you know, been doing this longer than I've been around. Um, but um, the, that was their point was eliminating that knock travel. Now okay. to answer your other question, 
what is, you know, does it make a bow less accurate or less efficient? Well, it just really depends on the bow. Like I said, if I put an eighth inch um, high on my uh, Evo, my Obsession Evo, I would have all types of inefficiencies. I'd have my arrow launching all over the place, and I would hear, um, because I am so um, familiar with my equipment, I would hear every little thing wrong with my bow when you may not hear it at all. But I know my bow so well that I would know. You know, And yeah, it would create little inefficiencies, and it probably just wouldn't shoot right. But there are bows, like I have a Matthew solo cam sitting right here that I need to work on for, for a guy. And uh, it does have a little bit of, uh, it has an eighth inch knock travel, um, and it's shooting perfect right now. I do need to set, I need to change out the peep form and do all that. But that's just the way this bow is, is because it's, it's a single cam, if you will. Right. You know, so when you start getting into single cams, you know, you know, dual cam and, you know, stuff like that, that knock travel tends to change. Okay. So kind of staying on the path of like inefficiencies, right? Um, how, how much, how much efficiency do you lose if your, if your cams are not timed properly? Well, um, more than more than you would ever want to lose. I'll tell you that, you know, um, if you're, and, and it can go is, is let's say you take a dual cam, right? You have two, two cams and let's just say the, the upper one is, is out of sync. Now you can try, you can sit there and you can try to paper tune and, and uh, French tune and do all this, all you want. And it might paper tune right up front when you're very close to the paper. You back up a little bit and you you launch that arrow where the the arrow can now um, uh, show you the inefficiencies in the paper because it has time to react to what's going on, the inefficiency in the bow. For one, you'll hear it. Um, for another, um, paper tuning um, a lot of I mean that's like that's like arguing oil also, but it at least gives you a starting point. Well, you can sit there and you can try to move that, that rest up and down to compensate and you can pick all the different spines of arrows all you want. Um, but until you get that, that, uh, them cams synced, you, you will drive yourself crazy trying to, uh, get your bow to do what you want it to do and to sound like it's supposed to. Gotcha. So, um, and you and I both know, you know, uh, sound from a bow, uh, I don't want to say any sound, but unnatural sounds from a bow, uh, equals pretty much efficiency. They're an efficiency problem. Right. Yeah. We had, we had, uh, uh, an engineer from bear on a long time ago and he mentioned that same thing. He's like, if your bow's loud, it means it's inefficient. Something's not working or not doing what it's supposed to do. But let's say you as you know, uh, a bow tech find out that uh, a certain bow, the cams are not timed. How do you fix it? Well, I have a draw board. Are you familiar? Well, anyway, are you familiar with what the draw board is? Yep, I've seen one. Okay, okay. Um, now, what I do is I can, most of the time, these uh, the hard cams and all that, they have a little, they have a little mark on, on the cam that helps you and, and Hoyt is probably the best one for this. 
um, but helps you uh, line up like within a circle of the of the cam, and you can sit there and look at the uh, the cables that um, hook up, and if they're not directly center or at least within that hole on each end at the same place, it's it's not timed correctly. Gotcha. Because what that means is when you're drawing that bow back, they are not tur- they are not uh, rotating at the same exact point um, in time. Um, when you get to the top, you you know depending on uh, how your bow feels, if you have a little bit of mush to your to your uh, backstop, um, and that's just the way the bow is designed, and that's the way you you like it, then you'll probably never notice at that point in time until you shoot. But if you have a very solid back wall, like I do, if, if something's not timed properly, and let's say the, the lower cam is hitting before the higher cam, I'll be able to hit my back wall and then still be able to pull that little bit of 16th or that little bit of 8th inch. And if that's the case, that's because I'm over-rotating the top cam to get it to hit the limb. Uh, and okay. that, that right there, I can tell you there's an inefficiency in the bow. But if they're hitting at the same time, you have two points of contact at the same time on the limb. You will not be able to pull through. The, you you won't be able to rip that string off the bow if if it makes sense. You know. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So, what are of of all the things that we you know kind of went through? Uh, we talked about vertical knock travel. We talked about um, you know twisting the strings. We talked about. Um, you know, timing the cams. What What are some other things that a bow tech does to, you know, does to bows that you know the average Joe like me may may not know that you do to help tune these bows? Okay. Um, one thing. One thing I tend to do is, you know, if if the bows, you know, tends to have a little bit of, you know, let's say someone comes in and says. Hey, it just seems slow. It, you know, it has some ring to it. I can add um, little brass knocks, and I tend to uh, test with this a lot. I can add little brass knocks in certain sync sequences up um, towards your cams or whatever the case is to help uh, quiet the bow down. And if they're positioned correctly, you can actually add feet per second to a bow. Oh, really? Um, I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you're not going to add 30 or 40 feet a second to the bow, but I can take, um, like, for instance, my bow. Um, I took, you know, right when I got the bow, I took the, the stock um, ABB strings off of it, built my own, and added um, uh, knocks to the bottom and the top in this, you know, after testing it and testing it, taking them off, putting them in different places. And and I'm up, I'm shooting a 400 and a 472 grain arrow at 318. Okay. You know, I mean, that that's pretty quick. And I'm shooting yeah. a 65 pound bow. Yeah. You know, okay. um, so I, I'm, you know, and what that can do, if I was to take them, uh, knocks off right now and shoot the same setup, the same arrow, I would immediately notice how loud my bow got. And I would probably lose, you know, anywhere from eight to 10 feet a second. So what is it specifically that those those brass knocks do? Glad you asked. Um, when they're set up properly, 
Um, now, just imagine this, and I'm sure you've probably seen uh, videos of the Archer's Paradox. Mm. The, the the like the arrow, how it how it wiggles and and out of the bow, it just oh, kind of uh, stuff. Bends. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and um, what that is, your your string does the same exact thing, but just think of it as your string vertical, and it does that same exact thing. It wiggle, you know, just kind of sits there and rotates uh, so fast, you never know it, you know, right. and a lot of vibration comes from there. Well, what that does is when you add them knocks in the correct position, once you let go of that string and that arrow goes, because you have the weight right um, within, you know, probably an inch or two, uh, probably within an inch and a half of the them cams on the string, what that does is helps that string because there's that weight right there. It helps them settle down into the grooves of the cams a lot faster. So you're eliminating that rotate, that rotation of the string and then thus, you know, taking a lot of sound out. Wow. So, you learn something new you know, every day. It, yeah, it, it serves a dual purpose. And, and that is what a really cool thing. And a lot of people don't know that because they think, hey, them knocks were already there. Yes, yeah. but what people don't notice if they're not in, you know, really familiar with the, their bow, they don't realize that I moved them. Right. Okay. So is this something that all Bowtechs know, or is this kind of a, uh, okay, I'm like a Jedi Master Bowtech? Um, <laughs> no, no, I don't want to call myself a Jedi Master, but I happen to be, uh, I happen to not be happy if it if it's not doing what I want it to do or what I know it can do. But um, and I I hate to knock on the the big store guys, you know, like let's just take an academy or a Wally World or or something like that where they might <clears throat> be able to set up a bow. Them guys, unless they're hardcore bow hunters and they do their own work, they won't. They probably won't know a thing about that. Right. Um, but a guy who runs his own shop and pays his bills through his shop. He'll know that. He'll, yeah, he, he should know that. If he doesn't, then I, I you know, <laughs> good, right. good for him. I don't know how he's really uh, getting, getting by. Um, not sure. that that makes everything well, but it, it's just them little things that most people don't know, them little attention to detail. Um, those are what make a Bowtech separate from the rest. Gotcha. Okay. So... You know, you have to deal with a lot of people and, you know, and most importantly, men, right? So men are the kind of people who, you know, we want things bigger, badder, faster, stronger, whatever, all those type of words, right? So, so, you know, I'm, I'm six foot tall. Um, I used to think I drew, I drew 30 inches for years. You know, my draw is 30 inches, 30 inches. And I had a, a Bowtech one time tell me, I think your uh, your draw length is actually 29 inches. P- shit, it is, man. I uh, I draw 30 inches. I pull 80 pounds. I'm a badass, right? So, right. So how often in your job do you have to tell people, listen, man, you don't need to do it this way because it's actually making you less accurate, you're, you're – your setup and having the correct setup is more important than, I guess, flexing your muscles. 
you know, um, and, and I, I have two points of view for this. Um, and you're probably not going to be surprised by them because, you know, it's probably the same as you now. Um, but when I was in the, when I was in the, uh, you know, pro shop where I worked, um, and, and worked for my buddy who it was his shop, he just didn't know anything about, you know, archery and I just happened to be the guy. So, um, from that standpoint, it was a lot harder to have that conversation because now at this point they know that I'm trying to sell something that I'm not trying to, well, or at least they think that I'm trying to sell something because I'm here at this shop and, and everybody thinks someone wants to sell them something. Right. right, right. Well, I, I, I genuinely really wanted to help these people out because I, I hated watching, you know, I, I didn't like watching them pull their bow back and watching how jacked up everything was about their form and this and that. So who am I to come up and tell them how jacked up they are? Right. Right. So that was, that was a lot harder for me to do when I was at the shop because they tend to not listen <laughs> because right. you're, you're a pro shop, you know, you're, you're there. It, they automatically go to, Hey, this guy wants to sell me a new bow or wants to, you know, get me for labor costs. Right. Um, so from that standpoint, that was really difficult. Um, but now that I have my own shop, um, I have no problem uh, talking to people because I can actually, talk to them and, and kind of explain how things work. But believe it or not, man, I mean, just guys tend to be, you know, guys and are kind of like you said, you know, I want to keep pulling this 80 pounds, even though I'm pointing to the sky when I'm doing it, you know, so I've been shooting this way forever. You know, my hands down here below my, not even touching my face, you know, with my release and I shoot good like this. And that's the worst thing. They can actually shoot good yeah. while shooting incorrectly incorrect form incorrect bow and everything because they have adapted <laughs> um so, and and that's you know the, the worst part but but now that i'm you know in my shop i can explain that to them and they tend to be a lot more receptive because they know i just want to help them out as opposed to sell them something right okay so that kind of leads me into the next question let's say i let's say for example i go i've never I've never really taken my bow to a bow shop to get officially tuned. I've taken it there to put the sight on and the rest on, and and then I I just shoot and tune. You know, I adjust my sights and I'm good to go. I'm I'm consistent. I shoot good, but kind of what you just said is that you may be shooting good, but your bow is not functioning at the maximum capacity. Let's say. A, a guy hears this this conversation that we're having and he wants to right. ask himself man is is that guy me i'm shooting good but my bow you know i my form may be off my bow may be off but i'm i'm still shooting good how should that guy you know take a step back outside of himself and look at his, look at his setup how he shoots to try to identify some of those problems to say okay i am now one of those guys so how do I identify and then what do I need to do to fix it? Right. And, and I, I think there's uh, a couple easy steps that, that a guy can take and to really help optimize his setup. But the first things first is he's going to have to be open-minded to maybe realize he could be doing something wrong. You know how a lot of that goes. Guys don't exactly want to be like, oh, you know, admit it that they actually are doing something wrong. <laughs> so... <laughs> First things first is is uh, because it, it's just so easy. You can Google uh, 
like uh, archery form, right? And just pick up on on a reputable source. Let's just say, uh, 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 I don't know, someone from Peterson's or, or something of the sort, and figure out, you know, how how to stand, you know, your feet shoulder width apart, you know, next to each other, and and start working on, you know, do you have your your bow arm fully extended or do you have a little bit of kink in it? Um, is it locked? Is it not locked? Where's your elbow when, when it's drawn, you know, look up this stuff, um, because it's hard to explain on, on here. Um, but look up this stuff and kind of gauge yourself. How close are you? Okay. Um, and you're going to want at least two points of con- you know, contact on your face. And I recommend corner of your mouth, obviously, and the tip of your nose, not the side of your nose, but the tip of your nose, right. Um, for the strength. And, and that's a good place to really start. And your grip is, is by far one of the most important things. Make sure if anything is right, it's the grip. And um, So go into, go, go into detail about that. Why, why okay. is the grip one of the most in, important things? Because I thought it was just, you know, hey, this is where I hold on to the bow. No, no, I mean, and, that, and that's where a, a lot of people fall into um, and, and there, the grip of the bow actually has a lot to do with, uh, with this, what I'm about to tell you anyway. Um, you know how Matthews started out and they had that big bulky wooden grip, big right. and beautiful. I'll tell you that, but it was just thick. It didn't, it didn't cut into the lifeline of your hand. If you will, if you look at your hand, you want to put that grip in between your, uh, pointer finger and your thumb and go straight down in between the, uh, you know, palm of your hand and the uh, thumb part of your hand. So if you bring your thumb forward um, a little bit and your hand flat, that little crease there where, where, like, there's a straight line between the, if you're taking your left hand, if you draw a straight line from the bottom right part of your um, wrist up to in between your uh, thumb and your uh, pointer knuckle on your hand right there, that's where that, that grip should be setting in. It shouldn't be flat, you know, across your palm. It shouldn't, it should be at that angle. Right. And that's where you want to have, you know, a lot of people, what they do is they just, it's hard to explain, but they just kind of uh, hold it and have the bow only the, the riser only contacting where your thumb and your uh, pointer finger meet right there, that little space, instead of having your whole hand on the grip. Does that make sense? Yeah. But you don't want to be actually squeezing the, the, um, the riser itself. You just want to, because you're pulling back on the string, you're pulling the riser into your hand. You don't actually want to close your hand. What you want to do is rest your fingertips like on the tips of the riser, on the outside of the riser, on the front, if you will. But don't actually grab that bow. It's not going to fall. It's just sitting in your hand because you, you're pulling back on the bow. Your hand is just there to make sure the bow doesn't launch back into your face. Cool. This is okay. awesome because so, I'm here in my chair, like pretending to draw back my bow. So it's almost like, because how I used to grab my bow and probably still do is almost like you're making right. a not necessarily making a fist. I, I have a loose grip, but it's flat, right? My thumb and it, I mean, it's just a flat plane from my thumb all the way around. What you're saying is you almost need to have the 
the the index finger higher than the thumb? Yes, actually, that's exactly what I'm saying. You want you want that 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 uh, riser when the bow is in your hand. You should be able to feel the the you know the bottom of the shelf where your uh, where your um, rest is. That should be tucked up in between your thumb and your pointer finger, and then you should be able to feel the lowest part of the riser on your hand. You should be able to feel that down by the bottom right part of your hand. Okay. So if that getting, makes sense, so yeah, you're, so there should be no space in no space in my palm. So no, there should be no space in your palm. Oh my god! You know, and you know what and, sucks and, is when you've you kind of realize that you've been I've been bow hunting now for like shit fifteen <laughs> years, and have probably been doing it wrong for fifteen years. You know, and, and and just to elaborate on this a little bit, you know, I mean, it's great to practice like this because then you'll you'll develop proper, you know, I, I, I hate the saying when people say perfect, you know, or practice makes perfect. No, it's perfect practice that makes perfect. Right. Right. And and that, that develops muscle memory. And right. if, you know, if you're shooting good the way, however it is that you've been shooting, I'm not going to sit here and tell you you've been doing it wrong but I'm going to tell you that there's a better way. Right. Um, you know, because, you know, the form issues like this, there's people can shoot good with bad form, right? There, there's right. target shooters um, in, in the circuit that actually punch the trigger and win championships all the time. When yeah. Levi Morgan will tell you all day long, don't punch the trigger, squeeze yeah. the trigger, do this, do that. Um, the guy wins all the time because he's comfortable doing it that way. But as us bow hunters, um, we want to be as efficient killers as possible. And there's just always a better way of doing things, plain and simple. Right, right. Um, well, and just to elaborate on that grip a little bit, um, uh, what that essentially what that does is because you're not you're not uh, putting any pressure on you don't want to press in on your thumb either um, because that'll torque your bow. You want is it relaxed as possible, um, and when I mean torque, that means you know essentially turning the riser right or left because your hand is not the bow is not properly seated in the palm of your hand. Gotcha. Okay. God damn, I'm just pissed at myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I mean you, you'll now that you're you're kind of cognizant about it and you'll be yeah. thinking it you know and with the weather getting good you, you know you'll remember that when you oh, yeah. get your bow out there um you, you're going to really pay attention to these things um right. and and the best way if you really are going to you know get the bow out and start doing it start shooting close um yeah. because if you go out and you say I, I, last year i was shooting 40 yards no problem you try to do that when you're goofing off with your you know, uh, your bow hand and trying to fix things, you're going to find out real quick that either you're wrong or your bow setup's wrong because you've been shooting it, you know, uh, torqued for one way, even though it might be accurate like that. Now you're trying to correct yourself and now the bow's wrong. Right. For sure. For sure. And then that's when you, uh, you lose a $25 arrow. That's when you lose a $25 arrow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, so, Kind of going back to the original question, I can, we kind of went off on a tangent there, but 
you know, you got guys come in who want, you know, who like, okay, I'm 30 inches. You got to, you got to try to try to, uh, talk them, you know, talk them down right. and say, Hey man, you're actually more of a, a 29. Uh, and you know, your form is showing me that you don't need to be pulling, uh, 70 pounds. Maybe you are right. more of a 60, uh, or 65, you know, pound guy. Um, right. You know, how, how much of that do you see? And then kind of I, go transfer that into, you know, not only do they need a different setup on their bow or different, you know, specs, but you know, maybe their arrows are too long or they have the wrong arrows. Right now. Um, what I, I do see that a lot. I do see a lot of people, um, who do want to draw. I mean, they, they, they've been told that you need, you know, all this draw weight to get speed. Right. And not to mention, I, I think, I think that whole speed game is, is uh, it, I don't want to say it's wrong, but you know, it, it's just, it's one of those things where, um, and, and like the gentleman said on, on your last podcast, it's, it's not about the kinetic energy. It's about that momentum, the follow through when Mike Tyson hits you, he didn't draw back. He went through you. Yeah. Right. And that's what you want from an arrow. And you actually, nowadays, the bows are so efficient, you really don't need all that poundage. But anyway, to go back on subject, um, what I do to really help people out and to help them actually physically see how wrong um, what they're doing is, you know, because I have so many people who want to draw 70 and 80 pound bows, and they actually bring them to me. And I have them sit down. I have a chair. I have them sit down in the chair uh, bring their release. And if they can draw that bow back, no problem while sitting in a chair, then by all means shoot that bow like that. But most people cannot do that. Yeah. Okay. Um, have you, have you ever tried that before? Um, you know, this is not me trying to sound like I'm bragging, but I, I lift weights, right? So I, for a while there, I was, I was pulling 80 pounds. But right. when I started to shoot a lot, I noticed fatigue, getting fatigued, and it just kind of stopped being, I don't want to say fun, but right. I, I was, you know, I was getting fatigued and I was just like, uh, you know, I honestly, I, I, sh- I could, I could have stuck with 80 pounds, but I just right. felt I don't, I didn't need it. And it would be easier right. for me to pull 70 pounds and I'm going to not be as fatigued and I'll probably be more efficient because it's actually easier for me to pull back that weight. Right. You know, and, and, you know, when you're, you know, out in Iowa, it, 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 you know, it gets pretty cold, you know, um, along here when, when you're sitting in a tree stand and let's just say this, this, uh, this buck comes running up on you and, uh, you don't have time to really stand up. Right. And we all know how this works. You know, you don't have time to stand up. You have your bow um, and everything's happening so fast and you just need to get drawn and then maybe you can stand. Okay, so you try to draw. You got 70 pounds. You're freezing cold. Your muscles are they're not working as efficiently as they would if they were warm. And so now you're not only losing strength, you know, just by being cold you know, you're, you're setting down and then muscles that would normally be engaged to be able to draw that bow back aren't engaged. Um, and that's where, you know, I see it all the time. You know, even, even me, when I was, uh, shooting 65 pounds, which I don't now, um, 65 pounds was no problem for me, even sitting down. But 
you know, the older I've gotten and I have a little bit of a shoulder issue, um, now, you know, I've got myself down to about 61, 62 pounds, um, while sitting down because now I know that I'm not going to have any problem with my gear being on, with me being maybe cold, um, and being able to draw my bow. That is not, that's, that's one less thing I need to think about while I'm out there. Right. Right. All right. So here's, here's a question then because of all that. You know, but we have been killing deer. You know, I remember when guys started talking about like, man, 200 feet per, you know, 250, 200 feet per second, right? right? When bows were going that fast. And now we're, you know, we're up above 400 and we're still killing deer, right? So what, what in your opinion has happened? Well, I I think um, it's, it's a business has changed. To be honest, um, I think um, everybody, it, it's not its not necessarily the people, um, but I, I think business has really changed the game. Um, obviously, everybody always wants to get a little bit, of, a little bit more. There's always a little bit more, um, and that's with everything. Um, and these businesses have come out and it just starting getting faster and faster. And once one business, you know, accomplishes, let's just say that that 300 mark, which not too long ago was a big thing. You know, you hit 300 and it's like, that was a huge deal. You know, um, every other company, if they did not try to compete, um, cause essentially that's what they're doing. If they didn't try to compete, they would disappear essentially. Uh, um, and, and that, and I, I may be a little extreme that they might disappear, but I think everybody is upping the ante, which is, in return, you know, making every other business have to produce, have to right. produce results. Um, so I'm not necessarily sure that um, it's it's driven by people's attitudes because look how long um, men were hunting with a 160 or 160 foot a second bow um, back. You know, they went they went such a long span of time shooting those bow bows and killing elk killing deer killing uh bear and what what did they not have at that point in time they didn't have a way of marketing like they do nowadays right right so do you think that this the companies in a way are responsible for making the average archer less educated about their equipment because guys, you know, certain groups of guys are, they buy into the, the, Hey, our bow shoots, you know, light speed or, or, um, we have this function and this function when in all reality, it's a basic, it's a basic mathematical equation. Right. Um, you know, being as, I mean, yes, I think bow makers have a, have a huge role in, in playing that game, but they're doing what they do best. They're right. selling a product. They're staying alive. Um, now, you know, back in, let's just say the seventies, um, you know, these guys, they were, they were the ultimate hunters, you know, in, in, in my opinion, these guys, they built their own arrows you know, they, they learned everything they could, not because they necessarily wanted to, but they were forced to, um, you know, there, there just wasn't the resources we have nowadays. Um, so they're all forced to be, let's just call them woodsmen. Their woodsmanship was better than mine. 
Um, they were better than a, a lot of men that I know. Um, so they were forced to do these things. Now, um, all the products and all the, all the, I mean, we have YouTube. You can pretty much do any, you know, fix anything, build anything just by watching right. a YouTube video. Um, right. The resources have, have changed. Um, so I'm not, I'm not necessarily sure that, you know, it's necessarily the business's fault because they've just as much provided the resources to do what, a, let's just say, a Botech would do for them. Um, but, you know, it's, it's up to the individual to really educate themselves. Now, you know, now we could go into that, but, you know, it's all about motivation. Like me, I don't have... I don't have to force myself to, to work on my bow before season or do this. I enjoy doing it because I want to learn as much as possible about these systems. I love it. Right. Right. For sure. So, so then let's say you get a bow perfectly set up for a guy, right? He goes and he shoots it. He's happy with it. um, And you don't see him again till the next year right and you you look at his bow and he comes in he's like maybe he wants a new string or maybe he's just stopping in for i don't know some you know just to bs with you right we don't ever really talk about maintenance on uh, archery equipment especially the bow what are some things you know from your opinion on how to maintain your bow so that you get a really good high functioning high quality life out of it Right. And, and it, it comes down to one single thing. Um, the most important thing on your bow, um, is your string. <laughs> um, you know, and that's taking care of your string essentially is taking care of the whole system other than, you know, throwing it or dropping it, you know, and cracking a limb, something of right. that sort. Um, but getting a good wax, um, and consistently waxing your string. Now, not your serving though, right? Um, the serving, are, the serving is essentially what protects the, the string from the cams. And, um, it's also the center serving, which your D loop goes on and, you know, that locks in your peak site. All of them, you want to keep the wax away from that because you don't want it to essentially, it, it could, uh, loosen up your serving, um, depending on how well somebody tied it. But you, you, you don't want any wax on the serving, but you do want to wax, you know, the string as often as possible. It's, it's cheap to do and it will save you, um, you know, anywhere from 60 to $80, depending on who's building your string, um, or, you know, who's going to replace your string, but wax works wonders. And, and I could build you a string, you know, and it could last you, it could last you three, four, you know, any five seasons, if you're going to keep it whacked, you know, and I, I do mean every time you go out, it doesn't take nothing but seconds. Just keep it waxed and that string will last you long enough to the point where you may get sick of the color and you just feel like changing it. <laughs> Even though it might be good, you just might feel like changing the color. So and you're a, you're, you kind of mentioned earlier that you were a, a huge fan of taking the stock string off you build your own strings and put them on why do you do that well because i i tend to use a different material um now there, there's a ton of materials out there you have you have a rhino string you have uh 452x you know bcyx uh fury you have all these different uh 
materials for strings, right? Um, some stretch more, some settle in a little bit better, which, you know, what helps your peep stay straight. When you're, when you're, you get a brand new string and you put a, a peep in, if the materials are really good and the string is pre-stretched properly and the serving is added to the string properly, your, your peep should never move left or right. Right. Okay. Um, now if it moves left or right, that's because, you know, the string is settling into the serving, settling into the grooves of the bow. And then once it finally settles, let's just say it's off a little bit to the right, um, you can, you know, put a twist in it and that'll fix all problems. Well, what I do is I take the strings right off and I keep the stock strings just for like last minute backup in case I, you know, I can, I can pack them in with me. Um, maybe if I'm going somewhere, that way I can just have a set of strings in case something goes bad. Maybe I, uh, nick my string with a knife on accident or, or a, a, a broadhead. Um, but the reason I do that is because I use, um, DCYX material and I'm, I'm, partial to it. I, I really enjoy the material. It's easy to work with. The colors are vibrant um, that I can use. And uh, the serving tends to wrap up nice with it. And uh, it, it's not that the strings that I, that are on there are bad. It's just most of the time I want to change the color. I want to change the design of the string. And, and you know, it provides a quick backup set. Gotcha. So it necessarily changing the string necessarily doesn't affect the functionality of the overall bow, right? Um, no, not not necessarily. There are some there are some like theory. Um, you'll gain a couple. You'll gain a few feet per second because it is such a uh, just the string material on it is a little bit lighter, and you can tend to get away with less strands in a gotcha. string, um, and so you're less mass there, um, and it is strong. Um, Rhino tends to be a little bit slower, but extremely quiet. It's extremely stable. And, and I mean, it, it's almost like putting steel wire on your bow. You know, it's it just, right. there's no creep to it. No, anything there's benefits to all of them. And I, I feel like BCYX is right in the middle of theory and Rhino. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So, I mean, we've been sitting here talking what I could, I could go on forever on, on oh, top, I, yeah. uh, topics like this. <laughs> so we're probably going to have to have a part two later on in the summer. But the last question that I have for you is, you know, we got guys out there who are going to listen to this podcast and they're going to say, man, maybe I need to go to a bow tech and have them look at my bow. What's the difference between a good bow tech and a great bow tech? Well, I mean, a good bow tech, you know, in, in my opinion, is uh, someone who's got the basics down, someone who's got a, a good idea of, of what's going on there, um, and you know, maybe tries to sell you some things. Tries to he tries to use products uh, or or uh, let's just say attachments for your bow to fix the problems that you may have, right? Now, if he if he says, hey, your bow's a little loud, you you need a uh, you know, a better stabilizer, or you need to put whiskers on your string. Okay, these are quick fixes. Like we discussed earlier, um, bad sound means inefficient, inefficiency. Yeah. No amount of attachment can fix an inefficiency. So it's right? a band-aid. So it's a band-aid. Uh, you know, a very, a very uh, general bow tech, you know, 
little knowledge at that point in time, whether they're learning or not, they'll, they'll try to, they'll try to fix things with products. They'll try to right. fix things and sell you stuff. Now, great Potex will save you money. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and as crazy as that may sound, a great Botex will have awesome, awesome customer service. He'll fix the bow. He'll fix, if he messes something up, he will fix it on his dime. Um, and, and he'll tell you about it, not just fix it. So you never know. He'll tell you his mistake, um, and, and make it right with you. Um, and also he'll fix the, the actual problem. He won't fix a symptom of a problem. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and that is going to be your biggest and really to find that out is to, you know, talk to him, not, not to necessarily talk to him like, Hey, are you good? Do you know anything about what you're talking about? But get your answers organically. You know, talk to him about hunting. Talk to him about, you know, uh, your setup and see where he goes. If, you know, I, I know I know there's guys out there that can talk their way through anything and make it sound good, especially if you don't know what you're talking about. Right. Um, but generally, I would say a general rule of thumb, if, if he says, hey, he can fix it by, you know, doing this or, or doing that, um, he's probably most likely going to actually do something to fix your bow as opposed to add something to fix your bow. Right. Cool. Yeah. That's uh that's a very good point. Um, cause I know for years, you know, I've taken, and you know, you, some of these big box stores, they got some guy and, and it's not to say that a guy who's, you know, 18, 19 years old doesn't know how to really work on a bow, but you yeah. know, I like taking my equipment to people with experience. Right. And, 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 you know, right. again, that's me, uh, judging somebody based off their age, but sure. you know, same, same, I mean, same type of deal. Sometimes the shoe fits, you know, I mean, right. you never really do know, but you being a, being a hardcore bow hunter, you, you know, your equipment and you, you kind of know when someone's trying to pull one over on you. Right. Right. Now, I got one more question for you before yeah. before we split is, you know, do you ever hear comments like this where it's, uh, I'm not trying to, I'm a bow hunter. I'm not trying to be a target archer. You know what I mean? When right in the, at the same thing, it's the same exact thing. You want to be as accurate as humanly possible when you're hunting, right? Correct. So, so you know, how often do you hear that? And then without calling them a douchebag to their face, how do you, you know, how do you talk to them about, you know, well, that's not, that's probably not the best way to look at things. Well, I, I think that, 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 that's a really good question because that's, you know, I, I tend to be a pretty blunt person and, <laughs> and, and I would be the guy to call him a douchebag to his face. But, uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, that, that's one of those things I, you know, I cannot stand and I don't know how many times I've heard it, even with, even with shotgun, uh, you know, season, I yeah. can't stand the, the, when people tell me they just want to hit a paper plate. Okay. I, I cannot stand that thought process. I do not like it. Um, you know, and it's one of those things where you want to be as efficient as, as a bow hunter as, a, as, I mean, you're taking another animal's life. Right. Um, now you would, you would hope you'd be given the same courtesy if the, if the roles were reversed. Um, and I, I hate to sound like a hippie here, but, uh, you know, a lot of our attitude and a lot of our, uh, 
I'm not going to call it a sport, but our lifestyle and our passion that we have depends on our attitude and depends on the way we look at things. And if you're just saying I can do some uh, stupid shot, you know, and my broadhead is going to make up for the rest and that's you're OK with that. I mean, that's just that's not that's not what we need in this in this lifestyle, in this sport. We need right. people who are willing to learn and willing to be effective and uh, at at any rate, you know, just willing to get better. And, and that, that's a hard conversation to have because that wasn't a, that was not a position they took up just last week. That was a position that they've had probably their whole life. Right. Right. I tell you what, man, uh, I really love conversations like this. And again, we're going to have yeah. to do it. We're going to have to do a part two of this, but you know, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day. Thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Yeah, Dan, I appreciate your time. All righty, guys. By the time you are listening to this, some of you anyway, uh, I will be driving in my car with my two kids to Turkey Camp, and uh, I'm just looking forward to uh, a little time with family and doing a little turkey hunting. Hell, we may even uh, look for some mushrooms as well. Looking forward to that. And uh, just having a good relaxing weekend and, uh, you know, refreshing through nature. Now, like I said, huge shout out to Garrett. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, man, and uh, sharing some knowledge with us. Also want to thank you guys, each and every one of you who listen to this podcast. Thank you very much from the bottom of my heart. Uh, Deer Lab, Exodus, Wasp, Ripcord, Deer Lab, Ozonix, Gearhead, Exodus, Wasp, Ripcord. I think, okay, I've said them all. All right. Go check those companies out. Thank you. Thank you for uh, your support of this podcast. And uh, check me out on Facebook. Check me out on Twitter. Check me out on Instagram. And I think that's going to do it for this week. I hope if you're turkey hunting, be safe, have fun shoot straight shoot them in the face and uh, if you're going to be doing any tree stand work guys remember to wear your damn safety harness have a good weekend